Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. When you want to have fun and have scratchers to scratch, there's a playful way you can do just that. Scratch with the key or acrylic nail. Scratch with the quill from a porcupine tail. Use a belt buckle from your friend Lamar. Or scratch with your pick while you play guitar. You can scratch in a bunch of different playful ways. Scratchers from the California lottery. A little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. Introducing Carvana Value Tracker, where you can track your car's value over time and learn what's driving it. It might make you excited. Whoa, didn't know my car was valued this high. It might make you nervous. Uh Uh-oh, market's flooded. My car's value just dipped 2.3%. It might make you optimistic. Our low mileage is paying off. Our value's up. And it might make you realistic. Mm, Car prices haven't gone up in a couple weeks. Maybe it's time to sell. But it will definitely make you an expert on your car's value. Carvana Value Tracker. Visit Carvana.com to start tracking your car's value today. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Nathan Ballingrud. He is an author known for his his short story collections, North American Lake Monsters and Wounds, Six Stories from the Border of Hell. His work has been adapted into a feature film and a television series, and his debut novel, The Strange, is out tomorrow. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We're so excited to chat with you. Um, and speaking of The Strange, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your novel and and um, how you came up with it or where where this idea came from? Uh, yeah. So The Strange is a, is a story that takes place on Mars in 1930. It's uh, about a 14-year-old girl on a kind of hell-bent on a mission of revenge. And uh, it's being billed as science fiction, but I don't think of it that way. To me, it's more like a dark fantasy sort of thing. Okay. It feels it feels to me very much a natural extension of some of the stories that were in Wounds, the sort of same sort of wavelength, um, although maybe not quite as horrific. <laughs> you know, since uh, since I was a kid, I, I, you know, I remember when I was little, I'd be sitting outside in the twilight, and I would just sit back and stare at the sky uh and see and at the moon uh when i could see mars that little little pink star it would just be utterly captivating and this mm. is i felt this really kind of powerful sense of of the romance of it you know uh and the uh of this just kind of magical distant place which is also somewhat possible 
And I just wanted to kind of tap into that feeling and uh, just kind of uh, recreate it for myself, at least uh, if if I possibly could. And uh, and my daughter, when I first came up with this idea, my daughter was about the age of the character Annabelle in the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's dealing with you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, teenagers have to deal with. And uh, being a single dad, I was consumed with the idea of of uh, of mortality and like, what's she going to do? Is she going to be able to, you know, fend for herself? And how do I, how do I somehow uh, prepare for her a life, for her mm. for a life? Uh, wow. You know, that she can run on her own. You know, like all parents right. have for their kids. And so all these kind of things were just kind of stirring in the pot, uh, along with the idea of Mars. You know, I think I had read recently. Um, I'm blanking on the name all of a sudden. The uh, the worst hard time, which is a nonfiction book about uh, the Dust Bowl. Uh, okay, great mm. big sweeping, you know, dust storms that would envelop everything, and so that kind of kind of uh, that aesthetic, that sort of early 20th century aesthetic, was was fixed in my mind, and and Mars seemed a natural uh, a natural uh, you know companion to that. Um, and then, you know, and then just the idea of I've never been a scientifically minded person. There's not a single ounce of plausible science in that whole book, uh, in the book, in my book, that is. And so I didn't let that stop me. I was like, this is just going to be fantasy. This is going to be pure, yeah. pure imagination. There's nothing plausible in the story. Uh, and, you know, you know, it's it became its own world. And as soon as I started writing Annabelle, she uh, her voice was crisp and clear, yeah. like from the get-go immediately, which is a rare gift. Uh, and uh, and so a lot of it was just sort of like uh, just sitting in the pilot seat listening to her talk. Uh, the only, or the co-pilot seat rather, listening to her talk. The only parts that kind of, s- that snagged me sometimes were the, were world building parts where I had to figure out, you know, how does such and such work? What's the, what's the history? All that kind of stuff. But when it came to character, uh, it was just, you know, I felt almost passive in that role. Mm. So I wanted to go back to something you said, because um, we talked with Haley Piper, uh, author, um, like a few, yeah. a few about a month or so ago. And when we were trying, when we were having her kind of define her book, she said that genre is a marketing term. And she's and so I I kind of bring that up because you said people are calling it sci-fi. And when I first read the synopsis of it, I was like, this feels like. Um, like a throwback to maybe like John Carter or the Princess of Mars kind of idea. And there's like a little bit of Western kind of feel to it, but there's also takes place on the moon, which may, people are going to think are sci-fi. Then I started reading it and I was like, no, this is definitely from the same author that would create wounds. Cause there's like a sense of cause without getting into spoilers there's a sense of like cosmic horror surrounding the idea of Mars. And so I just, I, I, I love this book and I was, I was kind of curious um, cause you've written a lot of novellas, short stories. Why this for your debut novel? Oh, that's funny. Uh, I stressed about that a lot. Um, <laughs> because, because of marketing, I think, first of all, I yeah. think exactly right. These are just, these are just tags that you put on to try to, so hopefully in, yeah. we'll find you. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah. And so I was worried because of this, although I do feel like it's organic, to the previous two books, it's also different, you know, yeah. in pretty substantial ways. And so I, I wrestled a lot with this fear, which uh, that that uh, 
that it was going to be different, that it was going to turn off readers from the earlier books. And, you know, if, I, if I'm trying to build a sort of uh, marketable identity, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I thought, then uh, it would be wiser to come up with, I have, you know, other ideas, which are more in line with some of the books that have come before. Maybe I should focus on one of those. <laughs> but it just felt, it just felt like this is the story that wanted to be told. I always yeah. kind of, the metaphor I use for this is just, you know, just dropping a well or dropping a bucket down a well and whatever kind of water comes up, that's what you have to deal with. And uh, that's what you, that's what you use. And it's not a perfect metaphor by any means, but, uh, <laughs> but this is the story that came up, you know, yeah. and it's like, okay, this is, it's here. Uh, once I started writing Annabelle and uh, characters like Sally Milkwood, they just felt really uh, alive. And um yeah. It felt almost like it would be an act of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, dismissiveness or unkindness or or irresponsibility to ignore them and to and to focus on something else because I was worried about what the market was going to think. You know, uh, mm-hmm. ultimately those kinds of things are not in my control. So yeah, yeah. Well, so you mentioned that you started kind of writing this when your daughter was around Annabelle's age. How long have you been working on this? Was it something that you've been working on, like, since you've been working on, like, your other short story collections, things like that? Yeah, on and off for a long time. Um, okay. And, uh, well, the first the first third of it was written uh, over a period of a long, long time. It was the first okay. time several years ago. And then I just put it on the shelf because okay. I was writing things like... Um, you know, the butcher's table and wounds and those kinds of things took kind of took precedence. And, uh, and I felt uncertain about it, you know, because of what I was talking about before. I mm-hmm. felt like this yeah. is the story that I should be writing. And so I let myself yeah. kind of get in my own way uh, for a while and just shelved it for some time. And uh, once uh, the book Wounds was done finally, and it was time for the next thing, that's when I fig- figured this is the next thing. So uh, by that time, Mia had aged a few years. Uh, she's now no longer Annabelle's age, but um, but that's okay. By that point, it was its own thing. Yeah, amazing. That's so cool. Well, I, I do want to ask about um, some of your short stories, um, just because I have I've talked about your short stories on this podcast quite mm-hmm. a few times, and like how much I love them, and how you really get this really interesting voice with like southern a southern gothic kind of vibe, but with a very different tonal feel i know that sounds very weird and convoluted but i just wanted to hear about like how you came into writing about horror in general and like why you were attracted to writing like in this and i always said genre labels are like marketing but within like this realm of the horrific the terrifying the disgusting you know yeah um i don't have a clear answer because it's just (laughs) it's always been uh kind of like the landscape of my imagination since i was a little kid uh, I've always liked the spooky stories. I just yeah. respond to them. Um, you know, I like to say that the first really creepy story, the first time I, well, I was too young to really consciously be aware of this, but looking back, the first kind of time I really responded to the spooky story was Dr. Seuss. He's got this, uh, he's got this story in one of his books, one of his little anthologies called, what were you afraid of? I think that's what the title is, but it's about the pale green pants with nobody inside them. And yes. Chasing, oh, uh, yes. Oh, my God. They're chasing this, this little yellow guy, this kind of, you know, the Susian nighttime strange architecture kind of place. And it was just so eerie and, uh, and, and beautiful and compelling. And, uh, and that was my favorite story of the time. And ever since then, 
those are always the stories that I've been drawn to. And it's whenever I write, it just can't help but manifest in the stories too. It's just it's just the way my imagination works. Hell yeah. And my other follow-up thing is, so I, I, and tell me if I'm off base here, you have some really interesting interpretations of angels mm. in your books. <laughs> and as Terry is laughing at me, because I love like, I love biblically accurate angels. And like, I, again, I'm bringing up the butcher's table again before we came on about like the creation of, I think the carrion angels is um the carrion angels. And then obviously in the visible filth. And um, I just want to hear about like kind of your draw to angels and like making these like perverse kind of disturbing versions of them which I love and we don't have enough in literature and in in horror media in general so I just wanted to hear more from you about that because it's my favorite <laughs> well I'm so glad to hear it because I'm it's been kind of an obsession of mine for for you know oh for, I'm not alone <laughs> <laughs> not at all and uh and one of the things I like to write about and this is tied into the to the answer to the question, although it might not seem like that way immediately, but the, one of the things I like to write about are morally complicated people. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm bored by heroes. You know, I'm bored by people who know, always know what the right thing to do is or people who always do the right thing in fiction anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, I just don't find them compelling to read about and certainly not to write about. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of heaven and hell, you know, pure good versus versus the opposite is just uh, is also kind of in that in that context uh dull mm-hmm. but um, but but I'm so uh, but I'm drawn to it because I also think this horror is uh a, an excellent way to kind of bring us closer to the sense of the numinous a sense of awe a sense mm-hmm. of uh spiritual uh smallness uh in ourselves and uh or feeling small that is in the face of something vast and that's a feeling that that really kind of strikes a powerful chord to me. And I really kind of, I, I want to touch that as much as I can in fiction. And so, uh, and so I, I think that's where it probably started to come from. And then the idea of, you know, there's a, there's a, the idea of heaven as being something other than what we think uh, started to really appeal to me. The idea of heaven as being a dark place mm. as, as the things that come out of there are the representations, the manifestations from heaven as being some, you know, terrifying and i don't even mean in the biblical sense although that's that's clearly where some of this kind of germinated from uh the idea that you know uh we fear god not because you know because he's terrifying to behold or his his representations are but it's not even so much that as it is just like what if we're wrong you know Mm -hmm. what if it's so alien that we just can't comprehend it and so when we see its manifestations uh they're terrifying and monstrous to us and then and, and the idea that that hell uh and this is something that i really kind of lean into in the butcher's table hell is uh uh like like the idea of of lucifer's breath being the substance of love that's what makes love because love is something that so often deranges us uh you know steers us down these these chaotic and dark paths sometimes um, and, uh, so what if that is what hell is? And, mm. uh, and there's really nothing more to it than that. It's pretty, it's just, it's just kind of flipping the, flipping the, you know, the, uh, flipping it upside down and just playing with it that way. So you said earlier that, uh, that you really like like morally gray characters or, yeah. you know, the good and evil is, is, is boring to read. And I was thinking about that particularly reading the strange because we it it starts off as sort of like the good guys versus the bad guys with like 
the thieves that come in that ransack a store mm-hmm. the young girl goes on a quest to go find revenge and it becomes something a lot more complicated more nuanced with that you talked about sally too and sally was one of my my favorite characters from the book because she she has her own set of morals and her own set of code and sometimes they clash with the other characters but it doesn't necessarily mean that that these people are bad or evil right and so i, I thought that that was I can see where where that kind of germinated from in in terms of like what you're discussing right there. I I appreciate that. Sally became one of my favorites too. Um, And if not, if not my favorite, although I have to say the widow, (laughs) the widow (laughs) storyline was just one of my little favorite, like little nuggets of like just deep cosmic horror. I have to throw that in there. Uh, Thank you. I, I, I I appreciate that. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's the, uh, you know, one of the things that that story was about um, is is Annabelle is she's a kid, and she has a kind of a simple idea, like many of us do, about what's mm-hmm. right, and what's wrong, and what sets her off on this on this uh, journey that she undertakes is her understanding of what is right and what is wrong, and a wrong has been committed, and no one wants to do what's right, so she'll do it herself. And one of the things that she learns in this journey is uh, it's just not that simple, and. Uh, it's never that simple. And all the characters, hopefully, if I you know did my job correctly, all the characters have their own little moral apparatus, which none of which are in perfect alignment with any of the others. But right. they all have to find a way to, well, to either get along or to uh, or to or to uh, deal with in some fashion or other someone who's diametrically opposed. But that's just like what life is, you know. It seems so simple uh, to say it uh, out loud, but you know, <laughs> we're we're all, I think, morally complicated characters. I know I yeah. certainly am, and uh, oh, yeah. you know, this kind of this 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 sort of notion that I think that we're all kind of, or at least society seems to be caught up in right now, in which this kind of stratified idea of what's right and what's wrong, and it's very simple and very you know, uh, uncomplicated is a. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is contributing to the problem of us not being able to understand each other. Yeah. Yeah. Two things. One one is that um I I'm I'm curious about the adaptations of of your work. We uh mm-hmm. we've been wanting to have you on for for a minute, so I'm so glad this happened because uh we actually had Mary Laws the uh the showrunner for Monsterland mm-hmm. on uh to talk uh and she was she was fascinating because we particularly wanted to talk with her because of the 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 uh the queer a- episode of Monsterland, but what is it like to see kind of your stories come to life in a different medium? Uh, amazing, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's it's awesome. It's fun. It's uh, it's uh, I you know when it starts to happen. Uh, when it first started to happen a few years ago, it just seemed surreal. It just seemed like this is the kind of thing that would never happen to somebody like me. Um, you know, I was just just a waiter at a restaurant. You know. And, uh, and so it was amazing. And, uh, and one of the things that I think is particularly fun about it, and I, I guess there are some writers out there who, who have an issue with this, but I, but I wasn't, I'm not one of them. I loved watching them change it, you know, whether it was Mary Laws in the Monsterland uh, show, uh, or whether it was Baba Kanvari in the movie Wounds, it was like, mm-hmm. it's exciting to see it, uh, to see something that you've made and give it to another artist and see them make it into something that fits the story that they want to tell, kind of in alignment with who they are. Uh, it's so exciting, you know. It's like a, it's like just seeing. Uh, I don't know what it's like, <laughs> it's, uh, but it's just it's fun to watch and it's invigorating and it's I think creatively stirring. Yeah, 
Harry knows I was a little bit of a nerd with Monsterland. I love Monsterland. I was like, um, that's based on this story, but not this one. And I was such a dork. I was like such a dork about it. And I loved the show, of course, but I was just like me drawing comparisons to the stories. <laughs> I have to listen that's to that. Smart. Mary's Mary's amazing. She's so much. She's uh, such. She's really she's such a great cool. writer. She's yeah, so she's, cool. That was it. Was it was fun to get to talk with her. Um, the other question I had just when I finished reading The Strange, I have to know: Do you plan on? Because there's a lot of like mystery and there's a lot of world building going on do you have plans to have more stories set in this in this world you've built or is this a one-off do you think i don't know uh i don't have plans okay well, that's not entirely true uh it's a complicated <laughs> answer uh yeah. it's written to be a self-contained story it's written right. not to be the beginning of any kind of thing um and part of the point of this story too was that we don't get all of our questions answered nope mm-hmm. we have to find a way to live with mystery and uh because that's life too. And so I wanted that. That was important to me that that, that be the case. Now, when I remember when I sold, uh, when I was trying to sell the book uh, to uh, to the editor, I was like, you know, uh, well, I, I don't think this is a particular spoiler to say. There's a, you know, th- there's a thing called the silence in the book in which all communication with Earth has gone, has stopped and nobody on Mars knows why or what happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was adamant when I sold it. It's like that question is never going to be answered. We'll never find out why, uh, because they never. I love that. And he was totally on board. So that was great. But uh, uh, to answer your question, so there's definitely room for more stories there. Um, if for some, if you know, by some chance, people want them. Um, but uh, but no immediate plans except. I have started writing um, these kind of vignettes. They're letters, actually. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with them yet. But uh, there's a throwaway line in there about a, a two criminals named Garrison and Cone. The sheriff was talking about them. And it's, it's, you just mentioned yeah. the offhand one time. And there's this other community called Brawley's Crossing that the story, the book never goes to, but we know mm-hmm. is out there. It's kind of like a, a more of a, a rough and tumble sort of place. We get the idea. So the idea, I started writing letters from Cone, one of the criminals, uh, to a woman that he loved but never told who's back on Earth. And uh, so he's writing these, he's writing these letters he can't send her, yeah. um, and she'll never be able to read. And uh, about her, about his life here, about what he wishes might have happened, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, they're kind of fun to write, uh, but they're not a sustained kind of traditional narrative. They're just... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just letters to someone who won't ever read them. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But cool. But I'm writing them anyway. I love that. I do want to ask you. So you mentioned that you were wait, you waited tables, but you also used to work as a cook on oil rigs I'm and glad barges. You, I'm glad you brought that up because that was I. I honed I in on that. that experience. Like <laughs> so, like, and I I come from a family of of chefs of like cooks and stuff. So I was especially interested to hear about your experience on oil rigs and barges, especially. Like, I can it's, see where you draw a lot of inspiration from for your stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds more exciting than it was. Uh, I got a job as a line cook in New Orleans. Uh, I worked at the place called the House of Blues down there for a few years. Oh, cool. And um, and I, so I learned like rudimentary kitchen skills yeah um you know if you ask me to come up with a dish i couldn't but i can i can chop onions i can peel potatoes i can i can run a grill and a saute station and uh and so i got about that level of competent line cook level of cooking right cool. um, 
and uh and so then uh yeah i just wanted to i left the house of blues and uh i heard about offshore work on the regs you go out there for a long time you make a lot of money and you come back for a, a week or two and sounded interesting so uh so i signed up for it uh and it was not terribly interesting it was actually really boring most of the time that's Good, I guess, for the most part, if it's boring on an oil rig, that means nothing yeah. is exploding or anyone's getting hurt. True. We, would, we would every once in a while on the rigs, we'd get into these uh these like pods that would that would drop off in the case of some kind of calamity. Uh and they would just plummet, you know. We this never happened, but we would get in there and it would strap ourselves in as if, you know, in kind of a drill. Uh and the idea was it would just drop off and land in the water and just kind oh of flip somebody. <laughs> what? That's kind of horrifying to think of. It was, and it's really cramped and smelly in there too. So it was like, yeah, this is not going to be fun if it happens. The, the most interesting thing that happened was once I was on a barge and a, a storm it was a tropical storm oh, which no. it formed in the Gulf. And the Gulf, uh, if you've ever lived down there, it's like a it's like a ping pong machine with when these storms yeah. come. Especially in the hurricane season, they're just everywhere and there's kind of roaming around like monsters out there. And so one uh, one uh, one formed, and so we had to turn around and go back to uh, go back to land. And it was a you know it was a barge, uh, so it's not exactly speedy. And so <laughs> right. turned around, we were heading back, and these huge, huge waves, these great big, these Titanic waves are kind of like crashing all over us. Uh, the the barge was pitching, you know, so much you couldn't put anything on tables. It all slide right off. Everybody was seasick. Uh, people were coming to the into the galley. We were just like munching on saltines to try to keep their keep their gorges down. Jeez. And uh, and me, I was a I was like in my early twenties, complete moron. It didn't seem that bad, you know, outside. And so at one point, I went out. I just oh, I was Nathan. Off, you know, <laughs> so I opened up the door. I went out on deck and just stood at the deck and was just watching it. And it was just this stupendous sight. You know, it was at night. These big waves crashing, and I could see out in the you know few hundred feet away these birds uh, skimming above the surface of the water, and they looked like they were standing still. They were flying into the wind, and so they were just stationary, and they would dip. Oh, in the it, was, it was so extraordinary. And then I went back in, and I was like, "Oh, that was fun." And uh, and the head cook at the time uh, <laughs> said, uh, <laughs> "Apparently, the guy, the the captain, saw me out there." And they told the cookie, he said, if he ever goes out there again, um, we're going to lock the doors and pitch him overboard, that stupid son of a bitch. And uh, I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess that was stupid, wasn't it? But you you yeah. talk about like the the desire to, you know, touch the cosmos in terms of like your loving yeah. of horror and stuff. Well, I can imagine just being out on a barge in the middle of like huge waves that if it kind of reminds you of like how insignificant you are. Oh, in terms yeah. of everything around you, yeah, I, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms at the time. No, of course not. And, uh, and 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 yeah, it was an act of stunning stupidity. Uh, and I was just incredibly lucky that uh, that nothing happened to me. And uh, the other only other time I remember out there, I was on an oil rig. It was it was nearly shut down. I held a skeleton crew. It was just just enough people there to keep it operational. And so we had like two cooks, me and one other person. We just have one of us was night and one of us was day. I was a night cook. And everyone was sleeping. There were only like maybe, I don't know, maybe eight people on this rig. Uh, not many in any case. And so I would get up when I was done. I'd do whatever I had to do to to keep 
something out on the on the line for people who were who up. I go up to the helicopter pad. There were no helicopters. Um, uh, we just came in and off of this one on a boat. And so it would be in the middle of the night, like two or three in the morning. And I go up on the helicopter pad and just kind of lay down and just look around me. And it was uh, just this big wash of stars overhead, just this enormous, you know, the, the great big night sky that you can never see here because of city light pollution. And uh, and the other thing that struck me at the time was if you go up there in the day, you can't see anything but water from mm. miles and miles and everywhere. And there's nothing but water, just just you, this little finger of life out in the Gulf. But at night, you could see like little candles all around the horizon, uh, wow. other rigs, the lights of other rigs. Whoa. And uh, it was just a really beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Wow. Wow. That's Other amazing. than that, it was all very boring. <laughs> I was going to say, when you were starting this story, I was like, this sounds like a, a horror movie ready to happen. A skeleton crew, six people, <laughs> yeah. middle of ocean, on an oil rig. It's like, where does the thing show up? Like, that's the kind of like situation <laughs> <laughs> that you just created there. And what a, wow, how amazing. It's amazing. So bring it back to childhood, though. Um, you mentioned mm-hmm. Dr. Seuss and and kind of scary stories being in your head since you found these books basically um do you remember like the first uh your first introduction to horror was it was it movies was it not was it books uh that's a good question i think i think it was i think it was a movie okay i think i saw the film version of salem's lot the tv version before king but it might have been the other way around i can't be sure i remember because my my mom was a big stephen king fan a big john d mcdonald fan but but King was the one that caught my eye because she had these old paperbacks. I had these, she had, she was reading a book called Night Shift. I know you know Night Shift. Uh, oh, yeah. Short stories. And it was the old 70s paperback edition, which had. Uh, the uh, hand? Was it the yeah. hand wrapped in gauze with the eyeballs? In gauze with eyeballs coming out all yes. over the time. And I would just stare at this thing in fascination. Same. My dad had a copy of that and I was always scared me forever. Like still in my head, like freaks me out. Just It's one of the all time (laughs) great horror horror book covers. And uh, it's just ingenious. And uh, and she was telling me about the story, Quitter's Inc., about this guy who had to, in order to quit smoking because she smoked. So this was something she thought about. And how we had to go around this the, 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 you know, this little narrow ledge of this big skyscraper. And it just seemed amazing to me. So I remember I, I picked it up and started reading it. And, uh, and you know, mom always let me read whatever I wanted to. And uh, and so it was either Night Shift or it was movie Salem's Lot. I can't remember which came first, but both both were foundational. Yeah. I love them both yeah. to this day. Oh, that Salem's Lot TV show is is it reminds me of how good like TV miniseries used to be before we got into like the 90s. And I don't I don't. I don't really care for the Stephen King adaptations in the nineties, but that Toby Hooper with uh, Salem's lot is just, it's perfect. It really stands up. Uh, It does. It does. We watched it pretty recently too. And I was like, this actually is quite scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm still pretty freaked out of these vampires. I think it was four or five years ago when I, when I bought the the Blu-ray and watched it again. And I was nervous to do it because I didn't want to screw up the very good memory, but I was so happy. You know, it was yeah. delighted to see it was no, it's actually still really good. It is those eyes, the eyes of the vampires, like that was the thing that rem- that has lingered with me since I was a kid. And that rocking chair, just like that's the one perfect, perfect My favorite scene. Yeah, old so school good. glowing eyes. That's still the scariest thing for me. You know, if your eyes are glowing, I'm scared. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Absolutely. And like what other like what other movies were you drawn to as a young like horror movies were you drawn to when you were younger? And it sounds like your was your mom also a horror movie person as well as a horror book she person? Was. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, awesome. She was. Although the ones that I remember more from that time, she would watch she watched uh you know, the Halloween with me, mm. with me and my brother. Uh there's a movie called Night Shift, I think. No, wait a minute. Was a graveyard shift? No, it was one with uh, William Shatner in a hospital. Uh, oh, I oh. visiting hours. Oh. I think. Yes. Okay, I was like, I know what you're talking about. I just can't remember the name. Yeah, uh, and uh, stuff like that. And then, but the things that I remember most from being a kid were '80s movies, because that's when mm. I started really having access to the VCR when I was left by myself. And I would go to the video stores and just and peruse those garish shelves. Uh, a wonderful experience that I feel sorry for, you know, people who were born too late to have that experience. There's nothing like trolling the aisles at Blockbuster, your home video store, Hollywood, yeah. video, whatever you had access to, and just seeing the the movies laid out in front of you you can't watch uh there's no video there's no internet to watch the trailers for so go by these 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 eye-popping covers you know these garishly colored covers and and uh and take your chances but i remember things like uh you know return of the living dead uh reanimator um classic covers those are the movies that uh really kind of like stuck with me from that time uh the thing of course uh Children of the Corn uh, really stuck me at the time, although that does not stand up, it turns out. Uh, I discovered. but uh... <laughs> neither, does the new, neither does the new one. No, it doesn't. Not, I'm not surprised. Uh, right, too- but I know. Because the story is great. Uh, the, story is. Is yeah, the, short, the short story is also in uh, Night Shift, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah, has one of oh, what a what an incredible short story collection. Boogeyman yeah. uh, made me throw that book across the room, which is turning into a movie this year. Yeah, oh, it is turning into a movie this year. Ugh, I'm ugh, we'll see. <laughs> um, but okay, we're gonna take a quick commercial break, and then we'll come okay. right back to talk about the movie that you brought you today. And we're back. Oh my gosh, hold on. I got distracted by your cat. What is the cat's name? That is Macy. She's very cranky. Oh my god, baby Zucchini. But if I put her wrong, she'll make me pay. What a baby. So I have I have a cat walking behind me. So I saw a cat. Oh Oh, Yanni. (laughs) Alice and Macy do not get along. (laughs) But they're on the same couch together. They can do that. Opposite ends. That's good. Hey. Opposite ends for sure. That's good for cats, I will say. Um, anyway, sorry. I, we love cats here, so I we was do. very excited to see a cat friend. Um, when you want to have fun and have scratchers to scratch, there's a playful way you can do just that. Scratch with the key or acrylic nail. Scratch with the quill from a porcupine tail. Use a belt buckle from your friend Lamar. Or scratch with your pick while you play guitar. You can scratch in a bunch of different playful ways. Scratchers from the California Lottery. A little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. And we're back from commercial break. Wow. Um, so, Nathan, what movie did you bring with you today for us to discuss? I came with uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay, so let me read a super brief synopsis of the film, and then we'll jump right in. So in, hold on, okay, sorry. The In Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Roy Neary, an Indiana electric lineman, finds his quiet and ordinary daily life turned upside down after a close encounter with a UFO, spurring him to an obsessed cross-country quest for answers as a momentous event approaches. That's actually not a bad synopsis for my IMDb. We've gotten some yeah, wild ones recently, but that one's that one's actually pretty good. Um, okay, so take us back. How old were you when you saw this? How did you see this? Um, why is this your Scarred for Life pick? Give us, why did this scare you? Give us your horror story. You know, I've tried to remember the first time I, I saw it, and I can't be sure. I'm, okay. I'm 52 years old now, so it was a long time ago. Um. I watched it again last night for the first time in a long time. Uh, it, uh, I think that I saw it on a VCR tape. Okay. But I have a memory of seeing it earlier. So it's possible that I was brought to the theater. I can't remember for sure. Yeah. I can remember, though, what freaked me out about it, and which is, uh, which is now the scene that we've seen a million times in the X-Files and all these other places. Uh, but it's a scene where the little boy is in the house uh, and his toys are starting to wake up and the lights are coming in through the shutters and everything is the whole house is rattling and, and, and shaking. And uh, and what what struck me about it, even watching it last night, was the kind of the, the way that uh, Spielberg really expertly captured uh, the realism of this the 70s household, you know, mm. the way everyone's talking over each other, the way that, you know, the way the kids are just kind of like half teasing, half fighting each other, the way my brother and I often used to do. Uh, the sort of teasing that's that's all in fun, but it's a lapse over into tears in the you know in a second. If the, it's like it was so realistic and it felt so real, even last night, that I know it must have felt that way to me too uh, as a kid. And then to see and to see that kind of place become fall under siege, mm. uh, the way it is with this with this thing that you can't understand. Uh, you don't ever really get a good. S- you don't know what's what it is. You see at one point the the lights and they look beautiful and the little girl says it looks like ice cream. But but even then you don't know what's inside those things. Yeah. And um and uh and that's what got me, you know. That's that's what that's what I I I remembered uh scaring me as a kid. The uh the uh the siege, the siege of lights and the shaking of your home, the, the, the safe place mm-hmm. uh, isn't safe anymore. Your toys are ambulating around without you. It's like, it, that's that's a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that was the that's like kind of earlier in the in the movie. Did did the actual abduction scene bother you as a kid? With the little bit with Barry yeah. getting, yeah, when the kids in the little in the in the in the cat door and uh, and the mom's trying to grab his feet and he's just yeah yeah <laughs> that was uh, that's, that's freaked me out now and I've seen this movie before <laughs> I yeah. was watching it and I was like that was intense how actually scary this abduction scene is like it actually is quite horrific. And as a little yeah, and as a little kid, I wasn't too many. I guess I was a few years older than that kid was, but uh, but still, it was like uh, you know. 
you know, something bad's happened to the kid. Um, yeah. That seemed, uh, that seemed transgressive to me somehow. Yeah. Although watching it again last night, I was like, you know, the kid at no point is ever bothered by any of this. The kids no. are like, oh, quite excited. He's like, hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go on a trip. <laughs> somehow that didn't soothe me as a, as a little boy <laughs> i can imagine you know fair though because you're like hmm is he actually gonna have fun up there or well was this like your first time seeing any kind of an alien movie and like did it give you like inspire any kind of fear in in aliens uh it, yeah it must have been my first time it had to have been my first time unless yeah unless maybe i saw some doctor who with some aliens it's possible <laughs> but nothing like this nothing on that scale um yeah and it didn't ever make me really afraid of aliens, especially because okay. the story turned out all right. But um, so that must That's have true. that must have uh, mollified me a bit. But it definitely made me fascinated. It definitely, you know, it was one of those early kind of like signal moments where your imagination is getting is getting shaped, you know, like mm. clay. And uh, and here's this movie, this extraordinary, scary, exciting, visually overwhelming movie. Uh, about aliens and uh and the fact that at the end it turned into something else that was exciting that it was beautiful that it was you know there's this there's this notion and of course this is all over my head as a kid but i think on some right. subconscious level i was understanding that it was uh the, the wonder there was wonder in it and uh yeah. and uh and that made i think that made an impact I don't think that sense of wonder's ever gone away. Even with the X Files, you know, that's like they're more threatening in there, but it's but the wonder is still there. Yeah, yeah I was wondering about that because when you were talking earlier and you're talking about again going back to that idea of like touching the cosmic or like seeing the cosmic, that I was I, I immediately wrote down a note because I wanted to bring that up again because that's kind of how I felt watching this movie is this idea of like experiencing something that is completely alien to you, mm-hmm. but like it brings in that awe, it brings in horror, it brings in joy, it brings in a whole bunch of emotions throughout this two hour movie, until the ultimate, like, you know, final area where it's like, oh, this is all good. This is happy. This is a joyful thing. Yes, we're seeing something that is completely beyond our understanding of science and everything, but it's, it's joyful, and it's wonderful. And I so I was just I was thinking about that as you were talking earlier, because that's, this is my first watch. I've never seen this movie oh. before. Oh, that's right. I forgot that this was your first time ever seeing this. What did you think? I have to know. I have to know. <laughs> well, I wondered when I sat down, I was like, okay, have I really not seen this movie? Or have I like seen it on a VHS as I was a kid? And like, maybe parts will come back to me. No, I yeah. had no recollection of ever seeing this movie before. I remember seeing the cover in the, uh, you know, at Blockbuster or at the video store. But I never... I never saw it. I, I, I must have known somewhat about it because I knew that the aliens weren't bad. And I think that might have been why, as a kid, I stayed away from it because I thought it might just be like a, a little kidsy kind of movie. I don't really know what my thinking was, but I think because I knew that the aliens weren't evil and that there had something to do with music, that it probably wasn't going to be a scary thing that like little terry wanted to go rush towards because i was always rushing towards the next thing that was going to scare me so i never watched it but last night i was like this is 
I was like, when did he make this? I had to go back because it's like right after Jaws. This is his next yep. movie. And I'm like, Jesus like, Christ, man. Who, what a... He makes Jaws and then this? Like, what is that? That's not fair. Like, it's not fair. talent for the rest of us, ass. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then Indiana Jones came really quick, quick after this. Yes. I don't know the next one, but it might have been. Like, I haven't... Well, I haven't seen the Fablemans yet, and I need to, because I know that's like Spielberg's. But I haven't watched Spielberg in a while. But just like... He knows how to make a movie and he knows how to make an epic like movie that gets into your bones. Like, I don't think I've appreciated that as much until like watching Close Encounters and being like, fuck, like this guy knows how to get you invested in his characters. He knows how to make a scary sequence, but also knows how to make like, I mean, he said this with Jaws too, and even E.T., like he knows how to craft these horror sequences. So his movie, mm. feel like they're not necessarily horror, but you have these horror moments like that feel so terrifying and up the stakes. But at the same time, he delivers these stories that are also like so like deeply emotional and about family and purpose and everything. And it's just so incredible to watch what he was able to make in the 70s, like in the 70s. And these horror slash sci-fi narratives are just incredible. And, like, I was, like, getting emotional watching the music scene again when they're speaking to each other with music. And I'm like, oh, we're just communicating with music and it's so beautiful. And, like, it's just, like, John Williams' score comes in and it starts using those notes. And I'm just like, God, like, I want to see it in a theater. I've never seen Mm. it on a big screen. And I really want to now, especially after, like, seeing this moment. So I had seen this a long time ago when I was, like, 16 with my dad but it was a really bad i was watching it i was at my dad's house and his him and his wife were fighting the whole time so like i was not paying attention to the movie (laughs) very weird it was like a whole thing but i'm so glad i could watch it this time and just like i knew i liked it when i first saw it when i I was 16 and it was a weird situation but like watching it now it's like this is this is like the basis for all alien movies (laughs) going forward you know like you mentioned the X-Files, Nathan, like every X-Files episode feels like this. I mean, think about all the other alien movies that are out there. And I thought a lot about Arrival. Um, yeah. It's a new Villanueve movie from mm. 20, 2016, 2017. And it's just like, this is where so many alien movies came from. And I didn't appreciate that until this time around. And not just in terms of like shaking houses and the abduction, but just like in our own like you said again, Nathan, like relationship to the cosmos and the sense of wonder we all have. Because I think what's really interesting here is like all of the characters when they see the aliens have like seem like children, like they're excited and they're yeah. curious. And I think that curiosity is something that I haven't, I didn't notice before in this movie. And like what really keeps this movie per- like pushing forward, even when that curiosity becomes obsession, then it's like very harmful. I think that air of curiosity is really fascinating in this movie. That's a good point. Yeah, it, it's 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 refreshing to see a movie in which the response, the military is part of the response, but it is not, you know, you know, seventy five trained guns, you know, on yeah. the on on the ramp. It's uh, it's 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 it's, you know, the scientists are taking the lead, and 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 the and yes, it's curiosity, not fear, which is driving them. That was exciting. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking about the decade of the 70s and a lot of like horror and sci-fi that was coming out at the time and kind of the movies that were coming out during the 70s because there's a lot of like paranoia a lot of angst a lot of uh you know like texas chainsaw massacre drawing on vietnam war like there's a lot of that kind of 
fear that was going on in this decade. And I think it kind of, you saw it in a lot of the movies that were coming out, Logan's Run, Soylent Green, Clockwork Orange, Alien at the very end of the decade, like all of these Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Exorcist, like all of these things are like dealing with existential dread, but also like fear of where you're living or fear of the future. And so I, I'm watching this movie and I'm watching this unfold with all this wonderment that is that, as you were saying, Mary Beth, that the characters all seem to to exude. And I love the the one little there's a couple little moments like the the guy that is when they've they've all perched up on the hill and there's the guy with like a sign saying, I hope you came in peace or something to that regard. And he's stop, like, stop and come in peace or stop, stop and come in peaceful. peace. Stop yeah. and be peaceful or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. I, I and I see that and I see the way. uh this movie is all about kind of communication and it's sort of like a refreshing change of pace to a lot of the movies that came out of that decade. And it, it surprised me that like, this is one of the, the few science fiction movies from that time that isn't about, you know, either lasers in space or warfare or good and evil. It is about the world coming together to, see what is what is coming from the outer space and it just i don't know there's something very refreshing about that as i was watching this last night and felt kind of counter programming to a lot of what was coming out in the 70s when it feels hopeful in a way too because i think that i mean i think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with like with royce royce character like his obsession and that destruction of his family but there's also like this hopefulness at the end when he gets like he finally finds his purpose. It's like an interesting look at like finding your purpose and finding your greater calling, which is interesting. And like how he found that and he was able to find hope for not just for himself, like for himself, but then also, you know, there's like a greater hope from like the scientific community there and kind of just like we aren't alone and I think so often, like, I was terrified of aliens as a child. Like, one of my number one fears, I was terrified of being abducted. Like, I, I was, obs- and I was obsessed with aliens because I saw so many things, like you're talking about, Terry, that are like, aliens are evil. They're going to cut, like, fire in the sky. They're going to come and abduct you and experiment on you and all this crap. And so seeing this kind of hopeful, like, they they do cut, like, to be cliche, they come in peace and, like, they just want to communicate was so refreshing. Um because boy oh boy aliens are terrifying to me or were terrifying to me as a child i read too much about them i did too much research about them and uh i knew about like the different kinds of encounters before i saw this movie there's like all the different like levels of encounters and all that stuff and so watching this i was like oh this is much more hopeful than like the scary stuff i read about people like waking up on steel tables and getting probes (laughs) it's just like yes (laughs) But I um I am curious before do you believe in aliens, Nathan? Is that a thing that you kind of think about? Uh, like maybe not aliens, life outside of our own planet, I suppose is probably a better way to put it. Do I believe there's life outside of our own planet? Absolutely. Um I, I think to me the the notion if you just think about how how vast the universe is and how every time we have an improved telescope with with better with with better lenses. We realize it's so much bigger than we even thought. Uh, yeah, to think that there's no other life out there just seems absurd. You know, uh, it seems like the height of narcissism. Right. Uh, uh, what does it look like? Does it fly ships? Uh, who knows? You know, um, I, I I I don't have any idea about that. Um, 
I, I think it's pretty doubtful that they're we're being visited by aliens. Um, but you know, the one thing, the one constant about I've noticed about myself as I get older is that I'm I too am much more comfortable with living with mystery. Uh, a lot of the things I used to be very confident of in my youth, uh, I am no longer confident of at all. Um, it's it's the old cliche: the older I get, the the, the less I know, and it's actually yeah. true. And I like that that's true. Um, yeah. That's exciting. I like mystery. Um, and so, yeah, uh, do I think there's life out there? Definitely I do. Do I think it's visiting us? I doubt it. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> right. Fair, so fair, fair. When, you were, when you were a kid, because like, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about the 70s. I grew up in the 80s. And so like I'm thinking about that time when there was like an obsession with aliens and obsession with you know are they here are they probing people are they mutilating cows are they making designs in mm-hmm. in in fields like all of that kind of stuff did you did that ever fascinate you as a kid or or did you not have any recollection of that kind of stuff uh i remember all that stuff i remember yeah. all being part of the part of the zeitgeist um uh but i was never particularly fascinated by it i was interested in it in the sense that i was interested in in everything that was you know, came under the umbrella of fantasy, science fiction, horror, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was weird and interesting, uh, but it was never a thing that really it was ever at the forefront. It was always like a side, a side thing that I was curious about. By that time, by the eighties, I was, I was a horror kid and I was, that's where all my attention was going. Um, you know, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Anne Rice, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so and so, yeah, I was never, I was, it, it never gripped me, but, you know, I'd watch the movies when they came on. So I, I do want to talk about the, like, when we first, I guess Roy first sees the spaceship, like his first encounter, because like we have this buildup of like, there's like, we see, we know something is going on. The military finds these planes that have been returned that are from World War One or two. I'm so sorry. I totally forgot. Old like planes. And they came by the people. I mean, so we immediately, I love like the setting of the scale of this, by the way. Like Spielberg is so good at this. And setting up scale and being like, oh, this is not just about one guy. Like this is a huge film. And, but then, you know, we, we hyper-focus on Roy who, and I love that Spielberg is so often about blue collar, like people. These are people that are just trying to live. Like they're working jobs to get by. They have suburbs, like standard houses, and they're just trying to live a life. And we see him, and I love how they set it up where the car comes behind him, and it's like, oh, there's a car pulling up behind his truck as he's going to find, like, why the power is out. And it's someone yelling at him, whatever. And then, the, oh, and then we, I'm like, oh, I know what's happening next. And then we see the lights pull up behind him again. Yeah. And it's just, it's so quiet. And then it goes up. Ugh. And it's just, I mean, like, it's so simple, but it's so genius. And having, and you're just so easily like, oh. And then everything starts. We have like the the moment where he sees the lights and everything is shaking and everything is just like absolutely what the fuck is going on. But it's it's so well blocked and like shot and edited where you feel like you are in that truck, like you are with him and you are seeing something strange. And instead of being scared, you are energized. It's like, like I talked about his purpose, like all of a sudden he's like, I found a purpose, like something here is speaking to my heart. I have finally found a reason to like 
exist. I know he doesn't ever say that, but it feels like that. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of breaking out of the the, the blue collar job, the, the family, and he is following a higher calling in a very, in like a weirdly religious way that I'm where I think about it. Like an interesting, like religious parallels here of like higher callings and going to this like giant structure in the middle of nowhere to like answer a calling from a higher being. It's so weird and cool, but um, I just love that scene and where yeah. we get like, and he isn't even abducted, but he just, the, the idea of it is so latches onto him. And I think like that is just so effective that that part. I agree. When we talk about kind of transgression. I think the the fact that we have the main character by the end of the movie leaving his family to go to outer space is quietly transgressive for like the 70s. And even Spielberg, I did find an interview with him where he said that, you know, if he had written this now as an adult with a family, he would never have had the main character leave his family. But I think it's interesting that that is the choice that he makes by the end of this film. I agree. And it, it, it struck me watching it last night uh, how funny it was that the question of his children or his wife never comes up. No. Never, never not what? They leave and he forgets about them, which I'm just like, okay, I guess that's fine. Like, he's just like, come back, Ronnie. And then he's like, all right, cool. I'm going to Wyoming. And then just like, never again are his family, is his family mentioned. It, 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 yeah. And, it, it, and my daughter was watching with me last night and she was like, you know, they didn't, they didn't even talk to those guys that got off the ship to ask them how it was. No. You know, this guy went up there and his <laughs> people away. It's like, I'm, all my organs are alien organs now. They don't work the same, but you never know. <laughs> it is, when they got off, they were, they were walking and talking. They were probably fine. <laughs> what could go wrong? It's, I, it, it is, it is hilarious. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, that definitely struck me too. It doesn't surprise me to to hear though that that Spielberg says that once he had a family he realized that doesn't necessarily ring very true. But yeah. I also feel like it's a little bit transgressive in how it has the crazy man. We are so used to in horror and in so many movies the crazy lady and everyone's doubting mm-hmm. her and she's the one that's seeing something and we see that a little bit um, with oh my god what the hell is her Jillian's character. And I, I, I want a movie from her perspective more, like more from her perspective. That's just me. Um, but like, she's, we see a little bit of that, like crazy woman kind of like, oh God, like what happened to her kid? But he's really like the crazy husband and we, and, and his wife is the one who's like, you're being insane. And like, we never see that. And we, oh, the man is always very reasonable. He is always the one that is like, he's holding the family together. And so again, having a dad and a husband, like, especially in this, 70s where it's like the men of the house he is going to protect you all and take care of you and it's all great and then he falls apart he starts building visions out of mashed potatoes pillows and dirt in his train set and it's just i think a really interesting inversion on how we like see gender dynamics in this especially in this decade of Mm. like genre cinema i think is super fascinating i do think steven spielberg could do better with writing women, but that's okay. I'll give him a pass. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, I, I, I agree okay. with all of that. And it was interesting to me, too, uh, tangential to this, uh, Jillian's character. Uh, her kid gets kidnapped. And she doesn't really talk about him again, again that much. She does a right. little bit when they get there. But uh, it's not like I didn't get the impression that this was uh, a person whose child had just been, you know, ripped out of her hands and taken into space it's like oh you know it's not my time i can't go uh i can't go down there with you you know my kid's not here i was like you you seem pretty 
pretty chill about the whole thing. Especially with how traumatic what it was. <laughs> well, yeah. it's like this horrible, like these clouds are rolling in and these, uh. like it's just like this terrifying it, the whole setup. And it just I can see exactly where Jordan Peele was pulling from from Nope. Yep. Did you see Nope, Nathan? Yes. Yeah. So correct. and I love and I love this though because it's like I a lot of people were drawing this comparison when it first came out and then rewatching it's like he totally like was creating his homage to like the Steven Spielberg esque alien blockbuster and the abduction scene I think is really indicative of that yeah. just with like the way it's approaching the house being like the fucking light through the the red light through the keyhole never mm. has that like such a small bit of light felt so menacing than when we just see that light coming through the keyhole and the little boy opening the door it's just so much of like the showing not telling or telling not show yes i'm not quite sure what <laughs> <laughs> giving us a little not showing like a full alien or yeah. like a full ship but you're getting like the, you know what's happening and you don't yeah the mystery of it and i think it's so fucking scary but I love seeing like Jordan, like wow, like what Jordan Peele was doing with Nope, and like how he gave. I don't think people. I think a lot of people did, but some don't appreciate. Like we we haven't had a movie like this in such a no. long time, and I think Peele creates something so special with Nope. This is now a Nope episode of the podcast. <laughs> we don't get a lot of alien movies like this, and I no. think it's just like I wish we had more of these giant alien movies because aliens are fucking cool. Yeah, and that leans into the awe. Uh, you know, we get, we get, we get, get, you know, murderous monsters, uh, which are fun. I'm, I'm here for it, but yeah, yeah, we don't get much of the, uh, of the sense of, of awe and wonder that Spielberg and, and Peel tapped into in theirs. Yeah. It's it's funny. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's where I think going back to a little bit to what we were saying before about the characters, I think if this film stumbles a bit, it's at the end where he, uh, where Spielberg puts all the focus, all the narrative focus on the awe aspect and forgets the humanity of these characters uh, and, yeah. their, and their what what they're giving up or what they thought they lost. Um, you know that you know the 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 reunion between Jillian and the little boy was almost like a an afterthought. It's like, oh, here's your kid. Yeah, um, yeah, should have been. You know, that's a profound moment. And uh, right, and you know, well, I- she doesn't want to go down the hill. Uh, I think if I were writing this, I was like, "You're not going to keep her from going down that hill now, you know, because that's might be where her child is." Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's that's definitely a critique. Because like I I I was when I was watching this, I was like, because I again never seen it, didn't know what was going to happen. Sitting here and I'm like, okay, this whole movie has been focused on these characters and and as you said, Nathan, humanity. And by the end we get we get like spectacle. And it is spectacle. Like it is gorgeous. The the practical effects, the of the the ship, everything is just it's beautiful and it's awe-inspiring. But I will say that when it, it's almost as like we're kind of like rattling off a, on a list. Okay, well everyone that was abducted is now back. Um kid is now here we're not going to question any of this because I wanted to know it was like, what was it like being on the ship? How did you survive? How are you the same age? Like all these questions, like what is going on in that ship that I had? And we focused, it's almost like it's just rattling off these things. And then all of a sudden uh, Roy is getting on the ship with them. And I'm, I'm, it, it loses a little bit for me in terms of that, that human aspect there with the ending for sure. Yeah. Personally. Well, especially as like we reveal this alien that is a very, that, oh. 
the very scary, very stringy, like long alien that I'm like, I come in peace. Absolutely not. Like you <laughs> look like a spaghetti, a scary spaghetti noodle. Um, but like, I mean, they do a real, that reveal is terrifying where it's just like, what is that? And then it's just a bunch of little gray. Like, then we get like the typical, like little gray, yeah. gray aliens that come out of it that look like kids. Yes. But again, like it is so focused on the spectacle. And I think that's something interesting that, that a note they play with about like the obsession with the spectacle and what, what mm-hmm. happens when you're obsessed with that spectacle. And again, like in 1977, I suppose it makes sense. Everyone's like, because I think Star Wars had just come out around this time too. So everyone's mm-hmm. like, look what we can do in space. Or like what we right. can do. And it's such an, it's it's like, I can, I can understand why he was just like, let me just show y'all what I can do, which is great. But you're like, you're saying it loses that emotional core to it in terms of like, you know, the mashed potato scene when he's building the mashed potato thing. Like, God, that, that moment. And I, I was thinking about like Jaws a little bit, like a, a dinner table, two dinner table moments. What a comparison piece yeah. for the the family dynamics and Jaws and that dinner sequence. Like he's he's looking around and all of a sudden everyone's silent. The kids are crying, and I was like, and he's like, "Well, I guess you noticed that something. Uh, Daddy's been uh, acting a little bit strange." And I was like, yeah. like that moment. There's like a split diopter shot. Of mm. Richard Dreyfus, like kind of laughing nervously, and his son just like trying Tears. to keep it together, but mm-hmm. noticing like my dad is not okay, mm-hmm. and it's such an incredible moment. And I think that's something I really appreciate about Spielberg is being he is so good at spectacle, but he is also really good at these quiet character pieces that like you are more invested in these dynamics. Which again is why I'm like, wait, we just left the kids. Like there was some really interesting stuff going on here with the kids, and then they kind of just disappeared. But that scene is just so tragic, mm. and it's wow, it's a, it's a really powerful scene. Uh, yeah, so Spielberg clearly has the chops for it. Uh, I just, I, yeah, I, I would have preferred a beat, you know, at the end about you know acknowledging that, acknowledging what he's leaving. Uh, but you know, it's. Uh, it's a, I your think, second it's like your second movie like <laughs> you're gonna make some mistakes i third, guess I think. third pardon me duel but. i think wasn't i think that was his first oh that's right i i forget about duel sometimes duel, yeah you know, it's, just, you know it, it's nitpicking you know it's it's a it's an extraordinary it is and it's like uh yeah. so easy for you know for for people to come along and just chip away at this minor little imperfection here and there and say well i would have done this but uh right. like really I couldn't have made that. Like I just know yeah. that I could never have made anything like this <laughs> exactly. before. So like who am I to be like What are you doing, buddy? <laughs> like who the hell am I? <laughs> but what I what I did find fascinating is that if you were to like distill the story down, it is narratively very simple. It is yeah. experience uh UFOs, get obsessed, go to this place see ufos like that is the basic like plot structure and yet even though it's two hours like i i didn't realize there was multiple cuts i watched the director's cut um which i guess takes like the 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 original and there was like a special edition that also included like a shot inside the the ship that the producers oh asked him to do and so then that was like for a while the only cut that was out there and then he did a director's cut that brought it more in line with the original 
but also had some of the embellish embellishments in it. So, and it's the longest cut. So it was two hours and 18 minutes long. The one that's the one I watched. Okay. I was like, I don't know what I watched. (laughs) I guess the, there's one that that's shorter that I think is like two hours and 10 minutes or somewhere in in like, okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And, but I'm watching, I'm going into this and I'm like, for, for a movie that is two hours and 18 minutes, almost two and a half hours long the the actual narrative plot is very simple but it's because he does focus so much on the characters and building each of these interactions and all these separate things that are happening before bringing them together and i do think that that is probably why i mean yes we're nitpicking but like i i feel that the ending kind of loses a little bit of that luster is because we did spend so much time building out the relationships and the characters and the interpersonal dramas that by the end of the movie i feel kind of get maybe tossed to the wayside for a giant spectacle mm-hmm. but it's it's still i i mean this is just a it's a remarkable movie i was watching it i was like okay i'm seeing where m night Shyamalan got like signs from the 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 house invasion feels very signs like the way the camera was moving i'm like okay i'm seeing where he's pulling from that i absolutely was thinking was thinking of nope and arrival as well mary beth when when they're interacting with them and the just the idea of the spectacle and the way clouds move and the way that the UFOs are using clouds that look like a giant storm was coming in. Just so many things that you can see that this defined the science fiction movie like like this of, of aliens and Earth for decades. I was watching this, like I said, with my daughter last night, and it was her first time seeing it. And it's one of the one of the fun things about watching these old movies again with your kid who's now experiencing some of these things for the first time um is uh you know she she liked it too and she's saying exactly what you what you both are saying uh that she says i i I'd never realized how much of what i've seen are homages to this movie mm-hmm. uh there was a scene that she even remembered seeing a scene from scooby-doo when she was little um that was she said oh that was an homage to the uh devil's rock and the, oh. you know, this, i guess there's this oh, elevated shot of the uh of the of the base right at the you know of the at the bottom of the of the rock and she recognized it from the cartoon and uh and and she mentioned nope and all this stuff it's like yeah this this is influent this has been profoundly influential yeah you said your daughter liked it yes she did yeah oh. um but before we wrap up i just want to give a shout out to the john williams score as always that man mm. always knows how to score a movie obviously but i love i was just focusing a lot on like how the score plays so much with being scared than curious like there's a point when they go back it's after the first night they see the ufos and everyone is going back to that spot Mm -hmm. and they think that these lights are coming and there's like this kind of fear like this the the score is kind of scary like oh my god what is that but then as the lights get quicker the lights approach it gets lighter and like oh wow it's actually happening and everyone feels kind of excited and then it's obviously helicopters but there's something really it's just so beautiful with how he constructs a score to really take you on that emotional journey of fear to curiosity to like delight and I think that is super on display at the end obviously we have like the symphony of extraterrestrials like playing music together and I know that's it's like this diegetic symphony, which I think is really interesting. But then William Square comes in and is playing with those tones. Mm-hmm. The do, 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 do. Nope, got it all wrong already. Um, anyway, but we know the tones. <laughs> we know the tones. But it's just, he always is just creating these bombastic but beautiful scores that fit the emotional state of every scene so well. Like, I don't 
understand how out the gate, like, like these, this pairing of Spielberg and Williams is just so iconic throughout all of like American cinema from the seventies onward. And it's just incredible. Like It is. Just- and one of the things I noticed last night for the first time uh, is that in this, in the end where he's entering the ship, um, Williams kind of interweaves into the, uh, into his score the main theme from when you wish upon a star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Because, um, beautiful touch. It, it It is a beautiful touch because when I was, when I was looking up information about this, he Spielberg apparently really just wanted to end with that song because like, it was like a, a through a through line in terms of the Pinocchio in the beginning. And this idea of like wishing upon a star of seeing the future of seeing like the, the, the stars in the sky and, and having that kind of hope and having that idea of, I, I guess, in a way, transcending to the next phase, because that's kind of what Pinocchio did. But it's like a little kernel that is introduced in the beginning. And he wanted that that this, the movie to end with that song. And I guess I don't know why it didn't happen. But I do love that John Williams incorporated that in with with his score. It just it's classic. Yeah, it was a nice touch. The The one last thing I wanted to to kind of mentioned that really that i really fell in love with and it's it's so small but it's this idea i mean i think we mentioned a little talked a little bit about it earlier communication and and language because here we have i love this this cartographer that is also a french translator Mm -hmm. and so there's this guy that speaks french played by uh francois to truffaut who is was um a, a famous director in in France and Spielberg loved him and w- kind of wanted him to be in this, in this, in this movie. But like we have him and he is in, he talks and then the, the English translators talking, there's a point where they're in India and then there's, you know, he's saying it in French, it's getting translated into English and then English being translated to Hindi. And I'm just like this, this idea of, of using the entire world is kind of the the implication here to suss out what is going on here. And then by the end of the movie, being able to communicate through music as like a different trans translational translational music uh, idea of language is so, I don't know. It's so fascinating to me. And so just like hopeful. So fucking smart too. Yeah. I'm just, just, it's so cool. It is. Well, on that note, Yes. Shall we wrap up and give us a rating out of five? Sounds good. All right, Terry, you're up first. How many mash, uh, mashed potato towers out of five, or mountains made out of mashed potatoes, <laughs> do you give Close Encounters in Third Kind? Uh, I mean, I have to give it five. This this movie is, uh, even though there's little nitpicks in terms of, you know, maybe this, we wish this would have happened, or it feels like this is left out. The fact that this that Spielberg is coming off of Jaws and just manages to knock this completely out of the park and cement him as a blockbuster director is just it's stunning to see the way other movies have pulled from this from this film. Like back when Nope, when I was like, oh, yeah, it's the kind of his Spielberg film, his Close Encounters. I had never seen it. And so I'm like, yeah, OK, sure. It's it's aliens and it's it has like scope of Spielberg. Sure. But then you watch this and it's like, no, I can see exactly the kind of homages that are coming from it, just the way this this movie has defined the alien movie kind of for for decades. It's just it makes me angry how how perfect it is. Uh, so five. <laughs> what about you, Mary Beth? I'm so I'm also five. I mean, like, I loved it when I first saw it. But even now, now even more, I can, you know, again, I could say I have, you know, problems, parts of the script. But like, 
it doesn't really at all they pale in comparison to like the feelings you get watching this movie these feelings of awe these feelings of like and again now even now this movie holds up incredibly well everything is so beautiful to look at every and it's because there is that human aspect that we have and i think watching this again has just given me such a deeper deeper appreciation for spielberg i think a lot of us are just like ah spielberg makes all these big movies but it's like no he makes like a movie he isn't just making blockbusters like he is making these like gorgeous pieces of, of cinema that i don't think i appreciate enough and i'm glad i got to watch this and like really think about like you know what spielberg really is such an incredible director and he deserves all that credit and this movie is just gorgeous and scary and hopeful and i'm just so glad i got to revisit it and so nathan you have the final word how many mashed potato mountains out of five do you give close encounters of a third kind i'm gonna give it four and a half um because everything everything you said was 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 true it's like it's spielberg really kind of coming into his own i mean well he did Jaws. I guess he already had done. It's, like, it's, it's uh, but I just I have to you know, forgetting the character at the 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 character beats at the end. It just characters paramount for me, and so yeah. I, I'm gonna have yeah. to take a few scoops off the potato mountain for that. But uh, that's fair. But an amazing movie, and 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 a lot of fun to watch again. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so, so much, Nathan, for joining us to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Where can our listeners find you? And um, the floor is yours to plug away. And and do you have anything coming up that that you can talk about? Oh, um, well, they can find me. uh, I'm most active on Twitter. uh, And when I say most, I don't mean I'm terribly active, but more there than anywhere else. uh, And Ballingrude. Instagram somewhat. yeah, well, and the book is coming out. The book is coming out on the 21st in my first novel. And uh, I have I got a novella coming out next year called Crypt of the Moon Spider. Ooh. Uh, but I really can't say anything more about that yet because because I haven't been clear, given, given clearance to, to talk about it. Uh, but it's coming. Sweet. Uh, so that's that's what's coming from me. Amazing. So listeners, you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. What was your experience with Close Encounters of Third Kind? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm McGailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon. We're releasing monthly content. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. Most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. Scratch with the quill from a porcupine tail. Use a belt buckle from your friend Lamar. 
or scratch with your pick while you play guitar. You can scratch in a bunch of different playful ways. Scratchers from the California lottery. A little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>